Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Nosile Zuma, and Nedo Chimani. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the first to have recruited COVID-19 patients in the framework of a clinical study to be conducted in 13 African countries. In a bid to tackle its economic crisis, Nigeria plans to reopen its land borders, which were shut almost a year ago. And South Africa's Expropriation Bill 2020 has been submitted to Parliament for introduction. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. I'm Anne Musa. Good morning. 88 more people have succumbed to COVID-19 related complications in South Africa in the latest 24-hour cycle, bringing the national death toll to Death, uh, death toll at 21,289. The Eastern Cape province has the highest number of deaths at 33, Free State 25, the Western Cape 18, Gauteng and Limpopo province each 5 and KwaZulu-Natal with 2. The health department says 3,069 new coronavirus infections have been recorded in the country. This puts the cumulative number at 778,000 571. Meanwhile, the Health Minister, Dr. Zulim Kize, will continue his visit to the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro in the Eastern Cape Province to check on efforts to combat the surge in coronavirus cases. Provincial Health Spokesperson Sizwe Kupelu says Mkize is expected to spearhead an awareness campaign in hotspots and address the issue of staff shortages at health facilities. We are focusing on testing in the highest epicenters like Motherwell, Clary Park, Alcoa Park, and Zwede. And when we go to those areas, you'll find that in terms of statistics in this area, the statistics are a bit high. And when we look at that, it then suggests that we should take our antigen testing to those areas so that we can start to maybe show beyond just a making announcements and lautailing that the reality is looking us in the eye. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed is launching the final phase of the army's operation in the northern region of Tigray. After weeks of fighting, he says the military would try not to harm civilians in the regional capital, Mikele, a city of 500,000 people, and urge residents to stay at home. The TPLF party, which controls Mikele, has vowed to keep fighting. The UN warns of possible war crimes if the Ethiopian army attacks Mikele. UN Human Rights Chief Michel Bachelet told the BBC the city's inhabitants were in deep trouble. ABA's announcement comes after a deadline he gave for Tigray fighters to surrender passed on Wednesday. 
Sudan's last democratically elected prime minister has died from a coronavirus infection. Sadiq al-Mahdi, who was hospitalized in the United Arab Emirates three weeks ago, was ousted in the 1989 military coup that brought Omar al-Bashir to power. His moderate Umar party was then one of the largest in opposition and Mahdi remained influential after Bashir was toppled in April 2019. Sudan's transitional administration governing under a power-sharing deal between civilian and military military groups has declared three days of mourning. U.S. President Donald Trump says he will leave the White House when the Electoral College confirms Joe Biden as the next president. The comment is the closest Trump has come to acknowledging his election defeat. The BBC's James Reid has the story. His legal challenges have failed in state after state. The transition process is now in full swing. But three weeks after the vote, Donald Trump is continuing to insist without evidence that the election was a massive fraud. Nonetheless, His commitment to leave office if the Electoral College confirms Joe Biden's victory marks a small step towards accepting the fact that he lost. Mr Trump went on to say it was going to be a very hard thing to concede. He refused to be drawn on whether he would attend Joe Biden's inauguration in January. An international team of scientists has sequenced the genome of 16 varieties of wheat in a breakthrough that could transform global production and food security. The findings could also help to reduce the need for pesticides which can harm the environment. The BBC's Anna Pizarro has more. The scientists leading the Wheat Genome Project, Curtis Posniak, described it as a game-changer. The study will enable breeders to identify genes that could improve wheat production. As one of the world's most important staple crops, responsible for as much as 20% of its calorie intake, wheat plays a crucial role in food security. Experts estimate its production must grow by more than 50% by 2050 to satisfy an increasing global demand. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed has announced that the military will begin what he calls the final phase of an offensive in the northern Tigray region. This after an ultimatum expired for Tigrayan forces to surrender. The government had given the Tigray People's Liberation Front until Wednesday to lay down their arms or face an assault on Mekele, the regional capital of 500,000 people. Human rights groups have raised concerns for civilians caught up in military military operations in which thousands are already believed to have died since fighting began on November the 4th. Military analyst Helmut Heitman weighs in on what is happening there. Ethiopia is a little bit of a hodgepodge of, of groups that over the years learned to dislike each other intensely. Um, for a long time, for instance, down the Romeo region, there's a Romo National Liberation Fund fighting because they said they weren't getting enough say in government. It's all run by the Tigrayans. More recently, the Tigrayans have lost influence in government. And they are unhappy. And there are the other groups as well. If you look at the Ogaden part of Ethiopia, which juts into Somalia and is peopled by, by ethnic Somalis, there's another insurgency happening there. So what I think we have is, well, A, you've got what's essentially a federation. I'm not sure it's politically a federation, but that's what it is in effect. That has a bunch of disparate groups that don't much like each other and that have man- not managed to get each other to understand each other and to work together too well. It worked for a while. Um, it hasn't worked too well more recently. There's a string of little insurgencies happening in the country. Worse, though, they've got Somalia next door, which is still not stable. They've got poor relations with, with Eritrea, which used to belong to Ethiopia, got independence some time ago. And, in fact, Eritrea is suspected of, of being, having funded al-Shabaab in Somalia to attack Ethiopian troops there. So there's that problem. Then next door there's Sudan, which is not a great friendly neighbor either. And then there's the longer-term problem between Egypt and Ethiopia, and the less extent Sudan, about damming of the Nile River, which the Egyptians still cripple the economy. And the Ethiopian attitude is also what? Mm. So what you've got is a whole mishmash of things, and it wouldn't be surprising to find, for instance, Eritreans involved. It would not be at all surprising to find that, that Egypt is stirring a little bit as well or at least exploiting the situation for their interests.
So it sounds like a very complicated situation. Uh, tens of thousands of Ethiopians, meanwhile, have fled Tigray into Sudan since early November. How does a conflict like this affect civilians on the ground, do you think? Oh, hell, it's, it's really nasty and messy. First of all, it does what any, any sort of war does. There is, there is unintended civilian damage. You know, when you shell somewhere, you tend to knock down people's houses as well, even if they're not the target. There are civilians who get caught in crossfire. And then, you know, if it becomes a, a, a civil war, and civil wars get nastier as a rule than, than ordinary wars, very often then the people, the soldiers actually do attack and kill the ordinary civilians as well, just on general principles. We've seen this in various African countries. We've seen it in Chechnya. We, we've seen it in Syria. You get it all over the world. You see it in, in, in Myanmar, the former Burma. Um, so you get families disrupted, you get people killed, you get kids orphaned, kids not just orphaned, but also totally dis- disconnected from families winding up in refugee camps. Livelihoods are destroyed. Your culture goes for a loop. It's an, an immensely destructive thing with a fair bit of death and a lot of damage beyond just death. You know, we think death is the worst, and I'm sure it is, but it doesn't help too much either. If you lose your entire livelihood, your home burns down and a part of your family disappears. God knows where, you know, maybe locked up somewhere, there may be dead, there may be refugees in the neighboring country. So it has a devastating effect on, on the civilian population. Now, it sounds like a civil war that's affecting the entire region. So how then should the African Union or perhaps the international community respond to this conflict? And, and what do you think are some of the available solutions there? The problem with, with internal conflicts like this is that there's never a quick fix. It takes a long time. It's much like dealing with an insurgency. Um, you can stabilize it and you can stop the mass destruction and the mass killing, but to actually wind up at a workable, peaceful situation, you're looking not at years, you're looking at decades. It, it just takes a long time. I think in a situation like this, ideally, the, the two groups would, would pull apart and agree to settle, which they clearly haven't done. And I think the central government in Addis is saying quite simply that the province has to rebel on the hell of everybody else. But I think the AU should try and persuade them and then try to put in an external force to stabilize the place and, and, and keep the peace while they talk. So that will take time. That will cost money. And, you know, we saw it didn't work all that well in Sudan, in the Darfur region, where, in fact, we had South African troops for a while. We saw it work reasonably in Burundi. South African, South African, in fact, initiated that mission and then was also the last one to leave. But we've seen Burundi unravel since because the bottom line is we weren't there long enough. You've got to be there long, so long that, in a sense, the people who are killing each other and who hate each other are old and in wheelchairs in the old age home and can't do it anymore. This generation will do better, one hopes. So what so you're saying, it's not, a, it's not a short-term solution, it's a long-term solution, even decades? Yeah, hmm. a decade or two at the, very, at the least. Um, but you can get, you get a, a patchwork, you can sort of try and make it work for a while. And if you look at, look at Alta, where people killed each other primarily with either Catholic or Protestant, um, then there was a settlement back in the mid-90s, which, again, in fact, President Ramaphosa was involved in, in helping with that. But it's still it's starting to stir again. There have been threats. There have been a couple of killings. It's, it's raising its head again. I don't think it's unraveled quickly there, but it just shows how, how difficult this can be. It's not a uniquely African thing either. That was military analyst Helmut Heitmann. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the first to have recruited COVID-19 patients in the framework of a clinical study to be conducted in 13 African countries. The clinical trial is a drug for neglected diseases initiatives projects including 26 African organizations and international institutions of research and development. This comes while the DRC is now facing the pandemic's second wave as Jean-Noël Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, DNDI, project has recruited more than 100 COVID-19 patients in the Democratic Republic of Congo since it launched the recruitment here in Kinshasa last September. This country is now facing the pandemic second wave and indeed the number of new cases is quickly increasing these days, especially here in the capital city, Kinshasa. The DRC is the first country to have launched the recruitment for the study, according to Dr. Wilfried Mutombo, the DNDI project responsible in this country. This is one of the biggest clinical trials here in Africa because this clinical trial involves 13 countries. So in DRC, in Kinshasa and capital city, we are working in two hospitals. 
we are in Galiema Hospital and St. Joseph Hospital where we are performing our clinical trial. And among this great consortium, we are the first country who started uh, to, to recruit patients. By today, we have recruited more than almost 100 patients in our clinical study. And we have three arms of treatment. Currently, we are in the second wave. The first wave were in March by March and with uh, uh, a top by July. But, and after where we had the impression that cases were decreasing, but now we are in the second wave because the number of cases are increasing. Even in the hospital where we are working, we have many patients now. This is a real problem in our country. Last week, the Democratic Republic of Congo has recorded 439 new cases of COVID-19, while the number of new cases was of 231 the previous week. The situation is more serious in the country's capital city. Kinshasa has on its own 395 new cases out of the country's 439 total number of the pandemic new cases. I then asked Dr. Wilfried Mutombo, the DNDI project responsible here, how easy is the study to work in this country where so many people do not believe COVID-19 exists? It's not easy, but uh, we have a support of uh, team working on reports and we have support of our Ministry of Health and our ethic committee. This is first and second. You know, when someone is diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, it takes some time for him first to accept that he is ill because we are working on mild and uh, no severe cases. You know, sometimes someone has just very few symptoms and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to tell him that, you know, you have COVID and you need to receive a treatment. So this is not easy. But when one is ill, we do our best to do our job and we hope that we can have. And so far, things seem to go well because uh, we have uh, almost uh, 100 patients included in our study. So we hope that things are going well. But it's not easy, you know, because other people refuse to be involved in clinical trial. And as you know, in Africa, we don't have a habit to be involved in clinical trial. It's not very new, but it, uh, it's not easy. So we are working to provide new treatment, safe and easy to use, and we'll work on access. I'd like to thank our patients first, because uh, they trust us. And I'd like to thank our partner, who give them money to allow us to do this research and, uh, of course, our health authority for the support. Meanwhile, authorities have called on people here to respect measures against the COVID-19 as the pandemic enters the second wave. And indeed, police have been deployed all around to arrest people who don't wear face masks. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Change Your Game is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially youth, on the African continent. Last year, Google named me as one of the brightest young minds in the world. The program seeks to portray various opportunities and options that are available for entrepreneurs. I came up with the way for the world not to part. It focuses and highlights real issues concerning entrepreneurship. There are so many people whose potential is still untapped. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. Channel Africa, the African perspective. At 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. A Cameroon says at least 15,000 people have been made homeless or displaced by floodwaters along its northern border with Chad. Government and aid groups are on the border to help those in need, but flood victims say food and medical help is scarce. Muki Kinzaka reports from Yaoundé that a majority of the flood victims are seeking refuge in surrounding communities. The number of homeless and displaced is growing from flooding on the border between northern Cameroon and neighboring Chad. Cameroon authorities say heavy rains that began in September and worsened this week forced the Logon River to burst its banks. In the town of Kuseri, 
Farmer Ali Kadil says his house and 15 others were destroyed by flood waters. He says at about 5 o'clock in the morning, the Logon River, on the border with Chad, burst its banks and swept away their homes. Kadir says he is grateful to God for saving the lives of his two wives and four children. But he says his family is hungry and his children no longer have a means to go to school. Cameroon's Far North Region authorities say several hundred homes and farms have been destroyed since Wednesday. No casualties have been reported, but many people are homeless. 35-year-old fisherman Omar Aziz is spokesman for the flood victims. He says they are urgently waiting for food and medical help. Aziz says waters from the Logon and Shari rivers that flow past Kuseri have swept away all the sandbags used to try to stop further flood damage in their village. He says flood waters have swept away 70% of houses along the banks of the river Logon, both in Cameroon and Chad. It was not possible to independently verify how many houses were destroyed in Chad, but Chad public broadcaster Tele Chad reported that government sent food aid to victims. Kuseri Mayor Eseni Dakadre says the city council is providing food and medical aid on the Cameroon side. Face à cette situation, nous avons sensibilisé les populations de quitter les lieux. He says a lot of farmers from areas that are now dry because of the advancing desert settled along the river to grow and sell crops in Cameroon and Chad. Dakar says the council intends to relocate people from risky areas along the river to safer places. Installer ces populations sur les sites appropriés afin de limiter ces inondations-là. Environmental researcher Wilfred Mbapokam of the University of Yaoundé 1 says the floods could be linked to the changes in climate all of Africa has been witnessing. What's happened over the Kalai region, which is a dry area over southern Africa, strongly impact the climate here in Central Africa. It's a region of the world where the temperature is very high, so it's like a desert. And because of this dry area, the temperature is higher over this area and a bit low over the Central Africa. And because of the longitude, when these winds are very strong, we have less rainfall over Central Africa. And when they are a bit low, we have more rainfall. Cameroon authorities say the International Red Cross and United Nations are also providing aid. Seasonal rains from surrounding hills and nearby Lake Chad often cause flooding in the Logon and Shari rivers. The worst floods in northern Cameroon in 2012 claimed 60 lives after more than a month of heavy rains. Cameroon authorities say flooding last year left 100,000 people homeless on both sides of the border. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. In a bid to tackle its economic crisis, Nigeria plans to reopen its land borders, which were shut almost a year ago. The move is seen as one of the measures to deal with the worsening recession and the shortfall in the projected earnings, which Minister for Finance says should clear out for a fresh, a breath of fresh air in the first quarter of 2021. Analysts have criticized borrowing and blamed government for the sharp economic downturn. Channel Africa's news correspondent in Lagos, Collins at Dohengbe has more. Nigeria's economy has been experiencing some problems since the outbreak of COVID-19, especially because the world oil market, which Abuja depended on for a larger part of foreign exchange earnings, could not impact positively on the economy since a large part of the trade is with industrialized countries where manufacturing suffered a steep decline due to the pandemic. 
Reports released by the country's Department of Statistics showed that there was a minus in projected GDP growth and this invariably impacted the economy in the negative with a result of minus 3.62% contraction leading to the worst recession in 30 years. The Minister for Finance, Zainab Barame, disclosing this says the report for border reopening so that there will be increased economic activities between neighbors will soon be submitted to the President in a matter of days. Mr. President has set up a committee that I chair alongside with the Minister of Foreign Affairs and other ministers including Interior, Customs, Immigration, the, the Security Services to review and advise him on the issue of border closure. The committee has just completed its work and we will be submitting our reports Mr. President. Though government has set up lots of think tank bodies to help it fashion out some measures to tackle the ailing economy, there are people who believe that a redemptive curve which will see the application of stringent financial discipline is what the nation needs to stand up to weather the brewing storm. Peter Obi is an economist, a former bank chief executive, and a past governor of Anambra State, Southeast Nigeria. When uh, what you can call a difficult situation before the COVID-19, so our situation has gotten worse unless we imbibe the physical discipline, extreme physical discipline, we are in for a bumpy situation. The one that will run out of control. We need to now take very difficult decisions to immediately by good physical discipline and ensure that we move this economy from consumption to production, 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 production. People must now make money by being productive. No longer can we allow any waste. To help monitor the situation, government introduced a number of steps which include acquisition of foreign exchange for import activities. What this means is that some items were deleted from the list of goods which qualifies for allocation of foreign exchange through the central bank. This has not gone down well with those who believe the nation's currency should be revalued. Here is Godwin Emefiele, governor of Nigeria's central bank. I do not understand what and how people who are supposed to know would begin to, to crave further depreciation of the currency. But we are saying, even if the currency is overvalued, Shouldn't we go through a stepwise process where the shock can be less felt than where policy, those who are supposed to know how this works, begin to create panic in the market? But on our side, we will continue to insist that the exchange rate is determined by forces of demand and supply in the NFX market. We do not agree that the determining factor for exchange rate in Nigeria for our currency should be based on a market that is tainted, a market where people go to offer bribes. And you can imagine where any, you can pay any price to buy foreign exchange to pay bribe. We are not going to be party to that. And we will continue to say this to anybody who cares to listen. Joe Femi Dagunro, an economist, says why the Apex Bank has its calculations right Many people would continue to patronize the parallel market to meet their foreign exchange needs. You see, we have a reduction in foreign direct investment, you know, inflow that is coming in. And as long as you have all this FDI shortage of FDI coming in and all other factors that we determine that, you see, and the exporters are not really exporting as before. So a lot of factors will contribute to that. And there's nothing anyone can do in my own mind. This problem will linger on for a while. The second wave of COVID-19 now ravaging countries in the Western world will not make things easier because developing countries which depend on export business may have to wait for a while before they can heave a sigh of relief. From Lagos, Nigeria, I'm Collins Nusato before Channel Africa News. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, 
the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed says he's launching the final phase of the army's operation in the northern region of Tigray after weeks of fighting. U.S. President Donald Trump says he will leave the White House when the Electoral College confirms Joe Biden as the next president. And an international team of scientists has sequenced the genome of 16 varieties of wheat in a breakthrough that could transform global production and food security. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you. And uh, South Africa's Labour Federation, Kasatu, has reiterated its full support for SABC employees who are currently on strike against the retrenchments at the public broadcaster. Members of the Communication Workers Union, a Kasatu affiliate, downed tools last week demanding that management should abandon plans to lay off 400 permanent employees and that it should withdraw redundancy letters already sent to some of the workers. Mugenimuto reports. It's day seven of the SABC strike. So far, there is no end in sight as management refuses to budge. Instead, it has decided to suspend the retrenchment process for a month until the end of December to allow for more consultations regarding possible alternatives to the layoffs. Kosatu says the striking workers must push on. Kosatu General Secretary Pekinjalinjali. There's no option. I mean, whether you lose your jobs now, we accept the retrenchment and you lose your jobs, you'll be out of the job in any way. So it's better to fight for a right cause and be able to be united and say, here yeah, we're together. We need to fight and win this battle. If they are able to be divided, it means others will retain their jobs, but others are going to be thrown to the dustbin of hunger. That's what workers' unity is all about. They must be united. We will support whatever way we need to and we have to mobilize the society so that their issues are understood, that these are the victims of the same management. Meanwhile, in the public health sector, Kosacho affiliate Nehau has downed tools indefinitely. It's demanding that the Department of Health hire thousands of part-time community health workers permanently. Kosacho says it supports the strike. The government has long taken a decision that community health workers must be employed permanently. That's what they said. That's what they promised this worker. And this worker, they are asking the implementation of that decision because some of them have been working for more than 20 years. So there was a celebration when the announcement was made that these workers are going to be made permanent. 
and what these workers are asking is the implementation of the decision that was communicated to them. They are doing a wonderful work uh, without being compensated. They are on the uh, cold face of the COVID. They are going to people who can't go to the hospital. And unless government appreciates that one and deals with them as a human being, I think we are reversing all the gains and that we, we fought for. On the ongoing public sector wage impasse, Kosato says it will hold a sit-in at the union buildings next week Friday to demand that government responds to its demand to pay public servants the 7% salary hike which was agreed with public sector unions three years ago. I am Bongeni Mutua in Johannesburg. Representatives from South Africa's police and the Justice Department have briefed Parliament's multi-party women's caucus on challenges and successes in fighting gender-based violence. Among others, the Justice Department is developing more child and teenager-friendly courts, but the Tutuzela care centres where rape survivors can find assistance are still buckling under limited funding and insufficient staff. Celine Merrington reports. The National Prosecuting Authority says it experiences several battles to keep the 55 Tituzela care centres functioning optimally. Acting Special Director Pierre Smith says they are generally understaffed and underfunded. But with funding allocated from the Criminal Asset Recovery Account, they hope to open six more centres in the coming year. He says more than half of the victims are children and almost all of them are sexually assaulted. It stood at 58% of all matters reported at the DCCs are unfortunately with children as being the victims of these um, horrific offences. And approximately 90% of all matters reported at DCCs are specifically on sexual offences. Now, in the period for for last year, we had 35,469 matters reported at 55 sites. Um, We've noted that in the current period, there was a massive drop for obvious reasons. In the first quarter, your April, May, June, when we were in more serious lockdown in relation to matters being reported. But since the lockdown regulations have been lifted gradually, we noticed that there has been a considerable increase in matters reported at our TCCs. And that's what I reflected there from August to October. There was an increase of 38% in matters reported at sites. Police told MPs that they are working towards having a gender-based violence desk at every police station with members who are properly trained and that rape kits will be available at every station. The lack of rape kits at police stations has been raised multiple times by MPs. Lieutenant General Moketsi Sempe assured MPs that thousands of rape kits have been sourced and will be available. So we can assure the committee that uh, during the course of the festive season, no police station will be without any uh, rape kit. Justice Department officials told MPs that they are making progress with child and teenage-friendly courts and that several measures are put in place to make interaction with the criminal justice system more pleasant for victims of gender-based violence. But one of the MPs, Sylvia Lucas, reminded them that the reality on the ground is vastly different. How do we ensure that all the victims in South Africa is really experiencing the kind of wonderful services that are being at display here in front of us. Implementation is an issue. The attitude of those that are supposed to deliver their services is another issue. And also the orientation of the people that are supposed to to deliver the services. I heard about Sajay and the training and the capacitation that you are providing. But who is monitoring that the people that are supposed to, that are receiving this training, are supposed to make sure that they deliver that kind of service with compassion? The Deputy Minister of Justice, John Jeffrey, called on communities to immediately report poor service delivery. Deputy Chair of the NCOP, Honorable Lucas's points about complaints about... That report by Zaline Merrington. Um, The Pretoria Commercial Crimes Court in South Africa has postponed the Busasa tender fraud case until the 18th of February next year. Former Busasa COO Angela Agritzi, its former CFO Andres van Tonder and the former Commissioner of the Department of Correctional Services Linda T and the department's former CFO Patrick Gillingham are charged with fraud, conspiracy to commit 
consummate fraud, corruption and money laundering. Lila Machnas reports. The charges faced by the four men relate to four tenders valued at more than 1.8 billion rand that were awarded to Basasa and its subsidiaries by the Department of Correctional Services between August 2004 and 2007. The tenders were for catering and training services, installation of CCTV cameras, perimeter fencing and the supply of television systems and monitoring equipment. The spokesperson for the investigating directorate, Cindy Siwetwala, says the case was postponed to allow the defence teams to go through the docket which consists of thousands of documents. Twala says Agresi was again not in court. The four accused that were supposed to appear before the Specialized Crimes Court, only three of them appeared. Uh, Angelo Agritzi, through his lawyer, basically presented that he's still in ICU and won't be able to actually appear before court. We must also mention that there was a warrant of arrest issued for him because of the last time that he did not appear before court. However, a medical certificate has been issued and sent even to the magistrate in this matter, but the warrant of arrest still lingers until the time when he presents himself. However, it's not executable. Agresi's lawyer, Manny Witz, says he saw Agresi two weeks ago. He was still very heavily sedated and uh, is on various uh, medication, drips, um, oxygen, dialysis machines. So uh, it was quite difficult to really uh, communicate it, but, you know, we couldn't really have a proper meaningful conversation. But I understand he's getting a lot better, but the doctor said, please just give him a chance. Don't put him under any uh, pressure, etc., so he can recover. Agresi had a heart attack in October after he was denied bail in the Johannesburg Magistrates Court. His appeal against the magistrate's ruling was successful in the Johannesburg High Court. Agresi, together with former ANC MP Vincent Smith, are charged with corruption involving about 800,000 rand. Agresi made headlines when he testified more than a year ago at the Zondo Commission inquiry into state capture. He testified about billions of rands worth of corruption, fraud, bribery and money laundering while he was working at Busasa. Bet says Agresi was arrested while he was helping the police and prosecuting authority to expose more corruption. I think he was taken aback by that because he had just really, um, he only gave evidence on the 18th of January last year and a few days thereafter and immediately after he gave his evidence, we don't know who or why, we're still investigating, we've got a good idea, suddenly he's arrested and other people are arrested. People who are assisting the country and people who are assisting the state and the commission and they give their cooperation and the next minute they arrest it. So uh, there are a lot of questions to be asked, a lot of questions to be dealt with as to who was responsible, why, what was behind it, etc. He says the case in the Commercial Crimes Court in Pretoria is far from ready to be heard. It's still going to be a long time till this matter gets to trial and we've got to deal with all the interlocutories and all the procedural stuff before you fix a trial date. There's still going to be requests for particulars, there's still going to be other interlocutory procedures, possible representations and uh, we'll see how it goes. So we'll then be able to see the strength or non-strength of the case. But I don't think it's, as, from our, our point of view, I don't think it is as strong at this stage as what they're now alluding to, etc. when I look at what the information is and also when we look at where the information came from and how they obtained the information. The case has been postponed until the 18th of February next year. I am Leila Magnus in Pretoria. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020.
This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. It's 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Workers' Union Bemao says it's ready for today's urgent court application at the Labour Court in Johannesburg to stop the retrenchments at the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Management plans to retrench as many as 400 permanent staff as part of its restructuring process, which has, however, been put on hold for 30 days to allow for further engagements with unions, government and other stakeholders. Another union, the CWU, has embarked on a strike. Bemao's Hannes Dubois and says they want the redundancy letters that the SABC management has already given to some of the employees to be retracted for negotiations to take place. What we are seeking today is if the SABC says that they want to consult, we want to make that an order of food. We seem to be some food for employees to be um, walking around until the end of December, which is the end of the consultation process, with a target on their backs, not knowing whether they may still be redundant. Um, or not. So if there's a sincere intent to consult in good faith, then those letters must be withdrawn because it's a decision taken based on a flawed process. Experts have warned against calls for the dissolution of the SABC board amid the uproar over the looming retrenchments. Civil Civic Organization Right to Know campaign expressed this during a webinar it hosted on Thursday. In the midst of the uproar, SABC workers have demanded that the board be dissolved, but some have warned that this could threaten the independence of the public broadcaster. William Bird is the director at Media Monitoring Africa. The SAPC is a source of information, a source of education, so that the citizens can actually be able to make the phone decisions. And one of the problems with the SAPC falling into a mandate that is not necessarily in line with the constitutional demand of what the public broadcaster should be will have a dire effect on the functioning of our democracy because then it simply means that there will be sections of society that will be excluded from accessing information. What we're calling for is that the SABC stays true to the mandate that it has to serve the people of this country. Some communities depend solely on radio, for example. So the threat of shutting down certain radio stations or you know, minimizing the effect of certain radio stations would have a dire, dire impact. Hungary and Poland have issued a joint declaration about the debt lock in talks over the EU's $2 trillion budget and coronavirus recovery package. The two countries have vetoed the bloc's proposals because the EU has made access to the funds conditional on member states upholding the rule of law. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his Polish counterpart Mateusz Morawiecki held a joint news conference. The BBC's Mark Easton has more. Mr. Morawiecki said the decision to link access to EU funds with the rule of law was politically motivated and, if applied, would lead to the dismemberment of the bloc and perhaps its total disintegration. Mr. Orban said those who conflate the two issues at a time when rapid decisions are needed to boost pandemic-ravaged economies are irresponsible. The pair signed a declaration saying neither country would accept a proposed solution if the other disagreed. Nigeria's finance, budget and national planning minister Zainab Ahmed hopes to quickly get the country out of recession and save the economy through rigorous implementation of the economic sustainability plan. She says they expect the economy to come out of the recession in the first quarter of 2021. Ahmed has dismissed concerns over the payment of federal workers' salaries. 
And Australia's ties with top trade partner China soured in 2018 when it became the first country to publicly ban China's Huawei from its 5G network and worsened after Canberra called for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. Tit for tat, diplomatic reprisals have since followed, including raids on the homes of Chinese journalists in Australia, evacuation of some Australian journalists from China and a raft of trade measures imposed by China on Australia exports. According to the International Monetary Fund, China is by far Australia's top overall export market worth $104 billion in 2019. So a lasting severing of trade ties could damage the Australian economy. For your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 386.6 Nigerian Nara, 11.02 Botswana Bula, 109.90 Kenyan Shilling, and 20.99 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar is trading at 534 Brazilian Rule, 75.58 Russian Ruble, 73.80 Indian Rupee, 658 Chinese Yuan, and at 15.18 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1,800. And eight dollars in platinum at nine hundred and fifty six dollars per ounce. While brand crude oil is at forty seven dollars eighty seven cents a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosilesum. A sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. From the sports desk, a very good morning. Starting off with rugby news. Springbok director of rugby, Rasi Rasmus, and Rugby World Cup winning skipper Siakolisi walked away with another set of awards on Thursday. A little more than a year after they spearheaded South Africa's third triumph at the Rugby World Cup in Japan, the dynamic leadership duo were honored at the Hollard Sports Industry Awards for 2020, which was staged digitally this year. The presentation takes place annually to celebrate achieving personalities and business in the South African sports industry. Erasmus was presented with the Leadership in Sport Business Award, while Kolisi was honored with the Sport Industry Personality of the Year accolade. Siakolisi will captain Western Province in their opening Curry Cup encounter against the Bulls at Newlands on Saturday. Kickoff is at 1900 Central African time. The Springbok captain returns to action after an injury picked up during the recently concluded Super Rugby Unlocked tournament, along with Siabelo Sinatla for the North South Clash. Golisi leads a starting lineup that features seven Springboks and a Springbok sevens player on each wing. Western Province coach John Dobson says his team cannot wait to get the Akari Cup campaign underway. We all know what the Akari Cup means to us. It's part of the fabric as much as DHL units. It's the opportunity for us to play the Akari Cup for Galaxy to wear the blue and white hoops in France and could see it. And our last Akari Cup ever at Newlands is very, very special for us. In football news, the South African Premiership side Maritzburg United have confirmed the return of Ernst Mirandop as head coach just days after sacking Eric Tinkler. Mirandop resigned at Ethiopian Giants St. George on Tuesday evening, less than two months into his three-year contract, citing the sectarian violence in the country as one of the key factors behind his decision. This is Mirandop's fourth stint at the team of choice. South African football journalist Veli Lemyandu says he saw Middenstop return coming. Look, <laughs> this is the fourth stint uh, for Middenstop at um, Marisbeck United. And for me, it's uh, it's very interesting, um, this appointment. In fact, I said this to, to a colleague um, earlier this week uh, when Marisbeck United released Eric uh, Tinkler and I said, ah, there, there is Middenstop coming back. And he couldn't believe me because he had just joined um, St. George's in Ethiopia on a three-year deal, but I said no. Um, you, you, you must know the dynamics um, of how Mirandob left Marus United the first time. And finally, in cricket news. 
The countdown has begun between South Africa and Proteus and England as the first T20 gets underway at the Newland Stadium in Cape Town this evening at 6 p.m. Central African time. The good news is that the Proteus have a clean bill of health from their latest COVID-19 tests conducted. SABC Sport cricket analyst Sikolele Sokielelua says anything less than a serious win will be underperformance. A serious win, that's the only thing they can achieve. And nothing, anything less will be underachieving. And, you know, they didn't do well the last time England was here. Um, and so they'll want to rectify that. Anything short of a series win will be disappointed. Asked about his confidence of a series win against reigning world champions England, Sokielelo says Proteus must be able to win the series in their own backyard. But it will be difficult against a good quality English T20 team. Yeah, at home, you know, with I mean, in any cricket, you need bowlers to take the wickets and the batters to score the runs. We've got both of that. And without having looked at player by player, when you're looking at both sides, South Africa should be able to win a series at home. Is it England that they're going to win against? It's not going to be easy because, like I said, England have got the likes of Johnny Best or Jason Roy, Owen Morgan, Josh Butler, you know, Joffrey Archer, Sam Curran. It's, it's a mixture of quality, quality T20 players. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto N.E.T.O. Chemani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Drive South Africa Rise and Shine for today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bungard, a technical producer, Wiseman Mangrele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mafigizolo featuring Davido with a track titled Telete. Goodbye and keep safe. Oh, they do look at them.